When President Biden announced a plan to cancel up to $20,000 of student debt for low- to middle-income families, tens of millions rushed to sign up for the relief. The plan was rolled out last August, during the tail end of the COVID pandemic, and it relied on the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, otherwise known as the HEROES Act. That was a law passed after 9-11 that gives the Secretary of Education the power to waive or modify student loan programs during a national emergency. The price tag for the president's plan? An estimated $400 billion. But did the president have the power to wipe out the debt, or did he overstep his authority? Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the justices heard two separate challenges to the president's student loan forgiveness program, Biden versus Nebraska and Department of Education versus Brown. At the heart of the oral arguments are two doctrines, the major questions doctrine and the standing doctrine. Joining us to unpack all this are two constitutional scholars who filed Friends of the Court briefs in the cases. William Areza is the Stanley A. August Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. He filed a friend of the court brief in support of the Biden administration. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's really wonderful to be here. And Anastasia Bowden is the director of the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. She filed a friend of the court brief in the same cases, but on opposite sides. Anastasia, welcome to We the People. Thanks so much for having me. Let's jump right into the central legal question in the case. Bill, what is the HEROES Act, and why do you believe it justifies the student loan forgiveness program? So the HEROES Act was enacted, as you said, in the immediate or medium-term aftermath of 9-11 and the prospect of war in Iraq that, that intended to allow the president acting through his uh, officials, in particular the Secretary of Education, to um, to make adjustments to important federal programs when there was either a military or a national emergency that would put, for example, student loan borrowers uh, in, uh, uh, in tougher positions than they otherwise would have been. This was wide-ranging legislation that was designed to allow the uh, executive branch to take actions that were necessary in response to national emergencies that had the potential for harming the well-being of the American people. Anastasia, why do you believe the HEROES Act does not justify the debt forgiveness program? Well, like most things in constitutional law, whether uh, this exercise of authority or the the policy at issue satisfies uh, the standard will depend on how closely we're going to look at the exercise of authority at issue. And so the first thing that we have to decide is uh, that level of scrutiny. And under what's called the major questions doctrine, I would argue that we have to take a really close look um, that because this is such a broad uh, use of authority that has such national importance that there has to be a clear delegation of power. And and that's for two reasons. One is just a common sense sort of um, interpretary norm, which is that if Congress is going to give uh, the secretary such a broad amount of power, it should really say so. Um, in our amicus brief, we use the example of a parent who says to uh, his or her child that they can use the car for the weekend 
to uh, fix up the house. Now, of course, if if the kid wants to take the car um, to grab some paint from Home Depot, I think everybody would argue that's a natural interpretation of uh, the parent's delegation of authority. But now if the kid says that it wants to sell the car to use that money um, to build a new wing of the house, I think we're going to take a little bit of a closer look because the kid is claiming a much broader um, delegation of authority. So here, I'd argue we need to take a really close look. And when we do, we see that this exercise of authority just isn't clearly authorized because it's not necessary to keep um, borrowers from going into a worse position with regards to their loans. I mean, the secretary argues that it's going to be uh, more difficult for these borrowers to start repayment in light of COVID. And so now it must just totally wipe out a huge amount of their debt. But there are a vast amount of other things that the secretary could have done to help these borrowers um, rather than this uh, rather expansive action. Um, secondly, I would argue that this doesn't merely waive or modify uh, student loan provisions that already exist. This is a whole new creation um, of a new program. So Chief Justice Roberts used the example at oral argument. Uh, he borrowed from Scalia a quote where he said, can we really truly say that the French Revolution modified the French aristocracy? He said modified, in our view, connotes moderate change. He said it might be good English to say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility but only because there's a figure of speech called understatement and a literary device known as sarcasm. And similarly here, this isn't just a mere modification of the statute. The secretary basically wiped the entire statute out and wrote something anew. And then lastly, I would argue that this is just a new and expansive use of power that the secretary has never done before. The the HEROES Act has never been used to forgive um, debt. And if Congress wanted to authorize the secretary to uh, permit a discharge, uh, it could have done so, but didn't use the language normally um, used. It didn't use the word discharge anywhere. So those are the basic reasons why I would argue that uh, the secretary has just gone far beyond anything that Congress has delegated. All right, Bill, um, let's just put the relevant statutory text on the table. Um, The HEROES Act authorizes the secretary to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Higher Education Act as the secretary deems necessary in connection with a national emergency. And there was just a lot of debate at the oral argument about the meaning of the words waive, modify, and necessary. Tell us about uh, your response to the claim that the wiping out of debt is not a waiving or modification of that debt. Sure. So at oral argument, Justice Kagan observed that very often the court is required to parse uh, complex or inscrutable or or perhaps just cryptic statutory language. But she observed uh, this is not one of those times. Congress doesn't get much clearer than that. We we deal with congressional statutes every day that are really confusing. This one is not. Because, in fact, the language of the HEROES Act uh, is really quite plain. As you said, Jeff, the authority that it gives to the Secretary of Education uh, is to waive and as well to modify any statutory or regulatory provision that is merely applicable to uh, student loan programs. That is to say, using words like waive, using words like any regulatory provision or terms like that, using terms like uh, applicable to 
the student loan program. And I'll just add a word that you didn't use that's also in the statute, uh, quote, as the secretary deems necessary uh, in connection with a national emergency. I would just note two things about that latter language. First of all, um, it's simply a matter for the secretary to deem uh, that waiver or modification necessary. That's the authority that Congress clearly gave the Secretary of Education and its authority to do that uh, in connection with a national emergency. The, again, the, the words that were used in the statute are both clear and at the same time broad. And that does indeed authorize the secretary uh, to do what he did in this case. It seems pretty clear to me that the use of these very broad words really kind of suggests that. And I would note, even Justice Kavanaugh, who's known for favoring more restrictive interpretations of statutory grants of power to the executive branch. Even Justice Kavanaugh observed to uh, uh, to the respondents' lawyers um, that um, the word wave is pretty awfully broad. And when you add wave in with these uh, with those other statutory terms that both you mentioned and, and that I added in, uh, it seems as though this is really extraordinarily broad authority and clear authority. Again, as Justice Kagan noted, Sometimes the court has to read inscrutable statutory language. This is not inscrutable. Anastasia, what was uh, the opponent's response to Justice Kagan as, as well as to Justice Kavanaugh? And, and may, maybe sum up uh, at the oral argument what you heard on this crucial debate about the meaning of waiver modify. Yeah, I think the response is that there's nothing in particular that the secretary is waiving. It's not as if uh, the secretary is excusing compliance with certain eligibility criteria. Um, instead, it's just ignoring everything that's there and writing something anew. You can't point to any one provision um, that's standing in the way as a barrier and that is now being waived. It's more like there are certain criteria for forgiveness um, and the secretary is just ignoring all of that criteria and, and, and starting up its new you know, its own scheme for, for to do what it wants. And I think underlying this whole debate, and you can see this with some of the skepticism from the so-called conservative justices, is that um, many people think that this is all a pretext, that it really isn't justified by the COVID-19 pandemic. But instead, this is something Biden has wanted to do for a long time. It's something he campaigned on. It's something that Congress considered and rejected, um, couldn't get it through uh, Congress. And so instead, the Biden administration has used uh, the COVID-19 pandemic as a way of, of getting what it wants. You know, this this all was done basically at the end of the pandemic, just weeks before Biden declared, you know, COVID-19 over. Um, and so I think I think that's what's going on here is you see a lot more skepticism from certain justices about whether this is um, an authentic use of regulatory power or a mere pretext. Skepticism about whether it's a mere pretext. Um, several of the justices did express skepticism of the program. Justice Kavanaugh said that some of the court's most important moments have been resisting executive overreach. Some of the biggest mistakes in the court's history were deferring to uh, assertions of executive emergency power. Some of the finest moments in the court's history were uh, pushing back against presidential assertions of emergency power. And that's continued and not just in the Korean War, but post 9-11 uh, in some of the cases there. So given that history, uh, and there's a concern, I suppose, that I feel at least about how to handle an emergency assertion. You know, some of the amicus briefs, one of them from a professor says this is a 
case study and abuse of a executive emergency power. So I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that's the assertion, and I want to get your assessment. This is a big picture question, so I'll give you a little time of how we should think about our role in uh, assertion of presidential emer- uh, emergency power given the court's history. Bill, what is the government's response and what's your response to the claim that this is a pretext and that uh, for that reason, uh, the court should take a very close look at it? Well, again, in uh, as far as the argument that this is executive overreach, um, it would only be overreach if the executive was not authorized to take the actions that the secretary sought to take in this case. Um, but he was uh, authorized to do that. And so to the extent that uh, this is an uh, uh, this is a case simply of using statutory authority that Congress gave the executive to Secretary of Education. Uh, then there's really no serious question of executive overreach. We'd be having a very different conversation if the Heroes Act did not exist and if the president were citing some inherent authority that he might have. In a case like that, we would be, you know, basically talking about cases like Youngstown, where the president seeks on pure Article II authority alone. And in this case, I think the intent of Congress in intending a broad grant of authority to the agency is particularly important, is particularly obvious, um, because the language says any provision, waive any provision that he deems necessary to do, uh, to, to waive in connection with a national emergency. Those are very, very broad words. And in particular, the word deem, which strikes me as a grant uh, a recognition and a grant to the secretary uh, uh, to use his discretion in deciding when something is necessary or not. The great concern would be that uh, a contrary decision would constrain the the choice of means that the agency, in this case, the education department could use uh, 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 to accomplish Congress's goals. And there may be occasions when that kind of limitation is appropriate to statutory language here does not uh, suggest that that kind of that kind of limitation or channeling of his discretion uh, is what Congress intended. Other presidents uh, have pursued their agendas through workarounds of an action in Congress, uh, including Presidents Obama and Trump. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld uh, Obama's efforts to shield immigrants from deportation and President Trump's efforts to divert funds to build the wall. Here, the justices seemed more skeptical uh, because of an invocation of of the major questions doctrine. Tell us what the major questions doctrine is, what cases it arises from, and and why the justices in this case may, may use it to repudiate President Biden's actions. The major questions doctrine is the idea that where there's an issue of vast economic and political significance, Congress can have been expected to have given clear authority for the agency to to legislate on that issue. And this ensures that elected representatives have actually delegated that authority to the agencies. And if not, that those big decisions remain with Congress in our democratic branch, where it's harder to get things passed, where, you know, our representatives must consider a lot of voices and a lot of things and and sensibly have better expertise to do so than administrative agencies, and where these representatives can actually be held accountable compared to administrative agencies. So really, it's a doctrine that, as I mentioned earlier, is not only rooted in sort of common sense, that if if you're going to give a big exercise of authority, we expect you to say so more clearly, but it's also rooted in ideas of individual liberty underlying our Constitution and the separation of powers. So this case has sort of had a 
resurgence in recent years, primarily among the more conservative justices, where they have have brought it up, you know, as recently as last year, having to do with the uh, OSHA vaccine mandate, with the CDC eviction moratorium, with the EPA's uh, creation of a clean power plant and its attempt to restructure our entire energy sector. Um, and you see them really wanting to take a closer look where the administrative state is growing and trying to interpret its power more broadly. And I love that quote that you pointed to, Jeff, during our argument from Justice Kavanaugh, because I think it really gets at the heart of the matter here, um, not just with regards to the major questions doctrine, but with regards to constitutional law, really. And that's how much should judges be judging? <laughs> you know, how close of a look should they be taking? How closely do we want them getting involved and overriding the uh, democratically elected branch? And, you know, to my mind, I think the judges should, should judge and should take a healthy dose of skepticism to assertions of political power um, for several reasons. I mean, because for one, because uh, these actors are self-interested, because they have a tendency, as was written in the Federalist Papers, to continuously expand their power, because they're valuable, because political minorities get left out of the process. And so for all of these reasons, I think um, it's important to, to take a healthy look and not to overly defer to these agencies when they argue that they have the power to act, especially here where they're uh, enacting a $400 billion program that's going to affect uh, millions of borrowers across the United States. We want to make sure that they have the power to do so. Bill, as Anastasia noted, the major questions doctrine has arisen in three important cases before the court, the vaccine mandate case of OSHA, the, the eviction moratorium, and the greenhouse gas emissions restrictions of the EPA. Uh, tell us why uh, you believe that this case is different than those three cases. And given the justice's interest in the major questions doctrine, why do you think that they should not apply here? Sure. So first of all, let me just, you know, suggest that, that I don't necessarily disagree with the concept of a major questions doctrine. Indeed, um, as early as 1986, nearly 40 years ago now, uh, Justice Breyer, in talking about the reach of the then recently decided Chevron case, uh, uh, suggested something that in some version could be understood as a precursor to the major questions doctrine, the idea that uh, when um, that Chevron deference may be less appropriate uh, when the agency is deciding uh, 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 um, issues that are not merely interstitial within the statute, but rather kind of borderline issues uh, that really go to the scope of the agency's authority. Um, so as a theoretical matter, there's, you know, it's not completely illogical to insist on something uh, akin to a major questions doctrine. But this is not that. Uh, this is not a case where I think the major questions doctrine necessarily applies. Uh, so if, for example, you think about the um, uh, 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 about the eviction moratorium. Uh, this is a case where an agency that really had nothing to do with landlord-tenant issues, with uh, uh, with housing issues more generally, uh, was uh, using its authority, its public health authority, um, to really do something that was far beyond what the Solicitor General called yesterday the agency's wheelhouse. Um, in this case, the Secretary of Education is absolutely acting within uh, his wheelhouse. Uh, administering the student loan program is exactly 
what the Department of Education does, and there is nothing unusual or, to use a word from one of the major questions cases, uh, extraordinary. There's nothing extraordinary about the Secretary's use of authority in this case. To think, for example, about the West Virginia case, that is to say about the greenhouse gases case, this was a case where the EPA uh, was attempting, again, to extend its regulatory authority far beyond the normal understanding of what the Clean Air Act uh, authorize the agency to do more generally. Again, this was a case of the agency pushing its regulatory authority, uh, kind of almost in a physical sense, because in that case, there was talk of the so-called fence line uh, rule that the EPA could regulate sources of pollution, but not downstream uses uh, of the stuff that was created with that pollution. Um, This is not a case in uh, 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 the HEROES Act case. This is not a case where the agency is seeking to extend his regulatory authority beyond the heartland of the statute. Um, this is a case that involves lots of money, and that's, that's correct. But it cannot be that things that involve lots of money necessarily involve major questions, because this is a very big government that spends lots of money. And indeed, our brief talks about how much money the Secretary of Education in past years has in fact spent uh, d- doing exactly the kind of administration of this statute that's at issue in this case. So the agency is not pushing its authority beyond its core uh, uh, authority uh, under the statute. Indeed, it's not pushing its authority beyond its core competence, which is to administer the student loan program. And uh, the fact that it's simply spending lots of money uh, does not necessarily make it uh, a major question. And for those reasons, um, as in intuitively appealing it might be to say this must be a major question because it's politically controversial, because it involves lots of money. Um, That is really, I think, uh, not a good way of thinking about the major questions doctrine. That would expand the doctrine far beyond uh, its intended and appropriate use. The fact that it involves a lot of money does not uh, trigger the major questions doctrine. Anastasia, uh, you argue that this argument runs headlong into a key limiting word in the statutory text, necessary. Tell us why you think that the uh, fact that the program is not necessary does trigger the major questions doctrine and and what you made of the exchange with Justice Gorsuch, who also was focusing on the word necessary. Yeah, and and first I'll say um, in response that the Solicitor General also tried to make these distinctions, and this was a big part of oral argument um, about why the, the, she she basically acknowledged that this is a question of exceptional importance, but it's just not the usual type of exceptional importance that triggers the major, major questions doctrine, because she really tried to make this program seem narrow, targeted, tied to an emergency. Sure, it's a lot of money, but lots of programs uh, entail a lot of money. And I think the her primary argument was that this is a, a program that involves economic benefits rather than an exercise of regulatory authority. And, you know, I think there was some play there or argument about that. But on the other hand, so what? So what if it's about economic benefits? The same core separation of power concerns apply in both circumstances. And I think this also downplays the incredible effects that benefits programs can have on the economy. Yes, they don't involve sort of civil liberties or other things we may 
usually think of, you know, endangering us that we need more judicial review. But certainly in our brief, we argue that uh, that this that this program that's supposedly only just a matter of economic benefits is going to have huge impacts across our economy that are really important to individuals. You know, that this has a tie to inflation, to ever increasing tuition prices, and that the whole policy is regressive. But in terms of why we say this isn't necessary, it's because the statute itself says that the secretary's action must be necessary to keep borrowers from falling into a worse position pre-emergency. And this simply isn't. It's sort of a Rube Goldberg scheme for that because there's so many other lesser intrusive things, less expansive things that the secretary could have done, including trying to channel people into income-based repayment. It could have extended forbearance. Um, There was no need to just wipe out the debt entirely in order to help people uh, repay it. It's a really extreme measure. And so um, I think that it's not a narrow targeted measure and it's not um, something that that the secretary is used to doing. Um, It's something new. It's something novel. It's it's an extraordinary use of power. And for that reason, the major questions doctrine does apply. And I'll just add, I can't believe we haven't up until this point in this conversation used the phrase, um, Congress doesn't hide elephants and mouse holes, the famous Scalia phrase. Um, and I think the same thing applies here, that that if, if Congress really wanted to allow the secretary to do this, it could have said so. And it could have said so very clearly, but instead it used this, this vague language that I think it's hard to square with the secretary's actions. If Congress wanted to do this explicitly, it could have, and it doesn't hide elephants and mouse holes. Thank you for using the magic words. Bill, uh, Justice Gorsuch was focusing on the question of whether um, the HEROES Act uh, allowed borrowers to be uh, not placed in a worse position financially because of the national emergency, and the question whether the borrowers who benefited here were worse off or better off. Uh, What was the exchange like about that? Sure. So that has to that has to do with the frankly the policy wisdom of the secretary's decision, which again is something that it seems from the statutory language is really committed uh, to the agency's discretion. Uh, but with regard to the question of being put in being in a worse off or a better off position, the 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 announcement of the loan forgiveness program uh, was accompanied by analysis that explained that following long periods of forbearance, as was you know everyone seemed to agree was necessary uh, in light of the pan- the pandemic's worst phases. That in the uh, uh, in the aftermath of the end of those forbearance periods, um, lots of borrowers, in in fact, would encounter serious problems uh, when it came to restarting their loan obligations. This is really common sense. If you haven't had to make loan payments for a very long period, and if you're in a particular economic situation where you simply don't have a lot of spare money floating around, you tend to earmark that money for other commitments and restarting those obligations, um, especially in a period of high inflation and still significant economic uncertainty, and frankly, still uncertainty about the future trajectory of the pandemic. Um, it's kind of you know common sense in some ways to you know or at least certainly reasonable uh, to conclude um, that not providing this. Uh, uh, this relief uh, would indeed place borrowers in a worse position than they would have been otherwise. Does it place borrowers in a, in a better position? Well, there may be some people who are, but of course, Congress explicitly authorized the agency to act on a class basis rather than on a case-by-case relief basis, kind of suggesting that there would naturally be some, you know, either some, uh, uh, um, you know, some, you know, some spilling over 
into people who don't necessarily technically fit the criterion or some underspilling in terms of people actually not getting the benefit of the program uh, who may in fact have needed it in order to avoid being placed in a worse position. So there it was not, you know, it's never gonna be a perfect fit. The statute recognizes that, recognizes that authorizes the uh, the agency uh, to act on a broad class-wide basis. Um, and with regard to the broad class, given the realities of restarting loan payments for people who don't make a lot of money and who haven't had to make the payments in a long time, limited forgiveness, which is what the program provides, is not an unreasonable way of trying to prevent people from being placed in a worse position than before. Anastasia General Prologar responded to this question of worse off or better off by saying that the loan forgiveness program didn't involve the department's regulatory authority at all, but Congress gave the department broad power to provide benefits to borrowers. But Justice Alito was skeptical of her efforts to draw a line between regulatory programs and programs involving benefits. Uh, Tell us why and and whether that exchange was significant. Yeah, I think it was um, because because Justice Alito and the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh were repeated several times the idea that that the core interest here is the separation of powers. And that interest applies no matter what type of regulatory scheme is uh, being considered. So sure, this is just a government benefits program, but regardless, um, separation of powers is important and it exists for a reason and it exists to protect our liberty and regulatory programs can have vast economic consequences for all of us. And so in reality, this is a distinction with a difference. And I think that was um, the main response that that you heard from the justices was, okay, that's a distinction, but why should we throw out the major questions doctrine um, based on that distinction? The core concern was separation of powers. Bill, as Chief Justice Roberts was centrally focused on that question, we take very seriously, he told General Prologar, the idea that power should be divided among the three branches of government to prevent its abuse. And Chief Justice Roberts said the program reminded him of the Trump administration's effort to end the uh, the Dreamers program of the Obama administration. Um, what was General Prologar's response to Chief Justice Roberts' question about whether she'd recognize that the case presents extraordinarily serious, important issues about the role of Congress and the role we should exercise in scrutinizing um, that role. Sure. Well, I think the response is a relatively straightforward one, which is that this is a case where the agency is acting pursuant to statutory authority. Again, this is not a case where the agency is finding finding an elephant in a mouse hole. Um, if this is a mouse hole, it's a pretty big mouse hole because it includes words like wave, deem, in connection with any provision. Um, and so we, can, we care about the separation of powers. We care about the executive branch not taking actions on its own authority um, that maybe spill over into legislative powers. Uh, of course, those are the classic separation of powers cases that we all talk about. But this is not that. This is simply a case of the agency using, yet again, because it's used this authority in the past, using this authority that Congress clearly gave by the use of clear but broad authorizing language. Now, let me say something about clear and authorizing. So, uh, uh, clear and broad, rather. Um, You know, we very often think that any time Congress gives broad authority to the executive branch, that that automatically creates a separation of powers problem. And maybe that might be the case if, in fact, we're willing to talk about the non-delegation doctrine. Um, But in this case, 
um, the broad authority is clearly provided for. And it is that clarity that really cures any separation of powers problem here, unless you want to start saying that this is simply not authority that Congress can delegate at all. And I don't hear anyone really saying that. All the conversation was about, did Congress actually choose to grant this authority? I think the answer to that is pretty clear. It did. And as a separation of powers matter, that means that the concerns that are reasonable concerns uh, the, you know, about executive overreach, those concerns simply don't apply here. Anastasia, um, Justice Sotomayor warned that uh, the Supreme Court was being asked to serve as the third branch of government changing Congress's words. Uh, what was the response to that concern? Yeah, and this was something that uh, Justice Kintanji uh, Brown-Jackson also reiterated. I thought it was really interesting because she sort of took Chief Justice Roberts' argument and flipped it on its head, whereas Chief Justice Roberts had said, you know, this is an issue of such importance. Doesn't it truly belong with Congress? Um, Justice Sotomayor and uh, Justice Jackson said, well, if this truly belongs with Congress and or the political branches, who are we to interfere? Shouldn't we allow Congress to step in if it wanted to? Because, of course, Congress could step in, right, and, and undo all of this. And so who are we to, to, to do so? And I think uh, the response to that is simply, well, judges must step in um, where they are empowered to do so and where they think that there's a separation of powers violation going along. That's why judges exist. They exist to be counter-majoritarian. Um, they exist to to undo constitutional violations. And so, um, you know, this again, this gets to this broader debate of, of where the justices sit in our society that I think is so interesting and that's sort of lurking underneath all of this. The idea of judicial review, that's, it's one of our, the most important issues in our constitutional structure that's lurking here. And um, you have some justices who are more keen to intervene and others who think that there should be deference. And for reasons that I've said earlier, you know, I, I happen to believe that there's a lot of reasons to, to take a skeptical look at exercises of power, particularly when they come from unaccountable um, bureaucrats uh, rather than Congress, and to make sure that if that power is delegated, that it really was, that that's what Congress intended, that it wasn't just uh, using some words that are now being uh, used out of context in order to get what the administration wants, but truly our democratic branch understood what was going on and, and, and foresaw that as a possible consequence of its delegation. Bill, Justice uh, Kintanji Brown-Jackson also raised the separation of powers question. Uh, she noted that on one of today's most debated policy questions, uh, the justices have to be concerned about jumping into the political fray unless they're doing so in a case in which someone has standing. Well, we've delayed talking about standing until this point in the conversation because it, it tends to be so technical, but it was it was central here. Tell us what Justice Jackson's concerns about standing were and why she felt that in both cases, and there are two on the table here, there was no standing. Sure. So um, with regard to the lawsuit brought by the states, uh, the standing focus uh, centered uh, on the Missouri Higher Education Servicing Authorities uh, standing to sue. Um, and the, the, the concern there uh, as well as the concern with the private party plaintiffs, Brown and Taylor. Uh, the concern is that um, they don't have uh, injury causation and redressability factors. Th those factors are not satisfied uh, 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 in the case of, uh, of those two entities. So it's the state of Missouri that is suing, not the 
Higher Education Financing Authority. Well, what is the injury of the state of Missouri? Well, the injury of the state of Missouri is that um, because it gets money from this authority, Mohila, um, maybe if this loan forgiveness means that there are fewer payments made, Mohila is going to collect fewer fees, which maybe means that Mohila is not going to be able to pay the money that it normally pays to the state, which in turn would cause an injury to the state of Missouri. Well, the court in the past has been very, very skeptical of that sort of attenuated causation reasoning. As, of course, we all know, as we teach our students in the 1L year, a butterfly can flap its wings in Japan and cause an earthquake in California. That doesn't mean that we would say that there's causation in any legal sense. Um, and I think the state of Missouri's standing argument in the state's case uh, suffers from the same infirmity. Uh, with regard to the individual borrowers, uh, my understanding from my read of the, of the oral argument was that uh, even the conservative justices were skeptical uh, of the standing argument there for a very basic reason, which again goes to injury causation and redressability, in particular redressability. Because as best as I could make out, um, the claim made by the individual borrower plaintiffs was that um, the remedy they want is to have the uh, uh, the secretary's action struck down. Not that that would benefit them in itself. Indeed, one of the one of the plaintiffs is actually getting some forgiveness, which that plaintiff would lose if, in fact, they get the relief that they want. But. What they really want, apparently, what they argue would really redress their injury, apparently, is that striking down the secretary's action might persuade the secretary to use a completely separate statutory authority to mount a completely separate program for loan forgiveness that might include both of the individual plaintiffs or might in include them more robustly in the case of the one who was already included in the secretary's actual challenge program. Boy, I mean, if that, you know, that, that is the butterfly's wings. Um, if that counts as the, the kind of, uh, 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 of um, the kind of judicial order that would redress their injury, then basically any plaintiff can argue anything. I could argue that the EPA should stop worrying about, uh, about water pollution because uh, if we strike down the water pollution uh, 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 regulations, then maybe this, the administrator will focus more on air pollution and use an entirely separate statutory program to regulate air pollution more. And as an asthmatic, that's something that I care about more. That would give me standing. I don't think I should have standing for that case. I don't think the individual plaintiff should have standing for that reason. Bill, we were in the same law school class, and I don't remember much <laughs> about uh, standing uh, at all from law school, but I do remember that idea that there has to be injury in fact. And you so yes. helpfully said uh, uh, that there also has to be causation and redressability. And then you explain why the challengers think there's no traceable causation or redressability of the injury of the state of Missouri. I, I love that uh, memorable metaphor. You, a butterfly can flap its wings in Japan and cause an injury in California, and 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 also for the individual borrowers because they're claiming the secretary might hypothetically adopt another program if this one were struck down. Uh, Anastasia, we're we're right in the middle of standing doctrine. Uh, please tell us why uh, the challengers think that there is standing um, and injury both to the state of Missouri and to the individual borrowers. 
Yeah, well, at the outset, I'll say I find the whole thing a little bit frustrating because the administration is in a way arguing that almost no one has standing um, to challenge this law because nobody is injured by not getting a benefit because you're not entitled to that benefit. And I think this is something we see um, recurring from uh, both sides of the political aisle. It should be known that very often people say, you know, standing for me, but not for thee. The government always wants to say, no matter what kind of administration it is, that plaintiffs don't have standing because they don't want to confront the merits. And, you know, I just have to, full disclosure, I sued the government for 10 years before I before I joined Cato. And so standing took up a good part of my time. And it's frustrating to me because I think, uh, very uh, strict standing doctrines prevent plaintiffs from going to court and making uh, very worthy constitutional claims. And it often becomes a game. There's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on in terms of crafting the statute so that nobody can challenge it. Um, There's a lot of bad faith. And I think um, the whole thing is unfortunate because people should be able to go to court and to to argue that the government has violated the constitution. so so that's, you know, full disclosure there. When, what can I say? When a man walks into a room, he brings his whole life with him, right? So I bring all of my baggage suing the government here when it comes to standing. Um, I'm overly familiar with standing doctrine. But in any event, the argument for the states uh, is first that Mohila, this is that nonprofit loan servicer um, created by the state of Missouri to, to service um, uh, student loans, uh, basically, Missouri argues that it has standing to sue on behalf of Mohila because Mohila is going to lose about 40% of its revenue or s- somewhere thereabouts um, if all of these loans are forgiven. And so Missouri says, hey, Mohila is state created. Um, the state speaks for Mohila. Mohila is performing an essential state function. Why can't the state sue in Mohila's stead? So that's one argument. The second argument is that um, Mohila's revenue is going to be reduced and Mohila has certain financial obligations to the state. And if you take away 40% of Mohila's revenue, no doubt that is going to jeopardize um, its financial obligations to Missouri. And therefore, Missouri has its own injury um, in the form of this threatened loss of, of revenue from Mohila. And so the idea there is that this isn't sort of a butterfly effect. This is really certain. I mean, how cert- more certain do you have to be that if Mohila loses half of its operating revenue, um, its obligations are going to be jeopardized? And, you know, I, I, I take the point that there's some speculation that goes into this, but what's the alternative? Do we have to wait until Mohila actually defaults? I mean, that's, that's a pretty... Um, high burden for plaintiffs, and it sort of would defeat the whole purpose. By then, all these debts would have been forgiven. They can't be undone. Um, And so the state wants to come into court now based on that future speculative injury. Um, The question is, how speculative do you think that it is? And then lastly, um, there is this argument about that the the states themselves are going to lose revenue due to these discharges. And that's even more speculative, I would argue, and it didn't really come up at oral argument. I think the the two main theories that were floating at oral argument and took up a lot of time at argument had to do with Mohila, and I think that's what it's going to come down to. Jeff, Jeff, uh, can I respond very briefly to a couple of comments that Anastasia made? Um, so, so the first thing I would note, as was made clear during the oral argument, under Missouri law, Mohila can sue and be sued on its own behalf. And yet it chose not to for whatever reason. The attorney said, well, there were political reasons for that. 
it seems to me that if you really want to worry about the injured party being the one to sue, then Mohila really should have been the one to sue political reasons. Well, you know, I'd be darned. Um, I guess the second thing I will say uh, with regard to the causation chain is this. Let's assume I'm a tenant. And let's assume that as a tenant, I'm paying rent to a landlord. Um, If I'm threatened with the loss of my job, which means that I won't have a lot of money. The theory that I understand states to be uh, asserting here is that, or at least Missouri, is that uh, the landlord can sue my employer because the employer's action will deprive me, the tenant, of money, which in turn I will be unable to forward to the landlord as my rent. Um, Now, is that so bad? In terms of, you know, actual kind of real world, well, this is kind of the world, the way the world works. It's an interconnected web. Yeah, I suppose that is the way the world works. We are an interconnected web. The butterfly in Japan can, in fact, flap its wings and cause an earthquake in California. That's not standing law. That is not standing doctrine as it's developed over the last 50 years. And Anastasia, as you know, having made a career out of, you know, thinking about standing as a plaintiff suing the government, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, of course, uh, of course knows that. And Anastasia, final thoughts on standing? Yeah, um, I guess my final thought would be that the the liberal justices had asked our argument, wouldn't it be a huge extension of standing law to um, rule that there is standing here for the states? But the conservative justice response was that, well, um, there's no precedent really either way. Like, we haven't ruled either way on this issue. And so um, you could consider it an extension or you can, could consider it that we just haven't ruled whether there is standing under these circumstances. And so, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it would be an extension. I just think it's something that hasn't been considered yet. Um, and in any event, I don't necessarily disfavor an extension of standing law because I think very often all that we're doing is keeping uh, uh, worthy claims out of court. Um, and again, this goes to, to both sides of the political aisle. Here we have uh, Republican attorneys general uh, challenging uh, uh a Democrat administration's actions, but this also came up with regards to SB8 in the heartbeat bill in Texas, where that law was very deliberately designed to evade constitutional challenge. And so um, it's something that we see repeatedly uh, in in the constitutional world and, and something that, you know, I don't, I don't fear a sea change when it comes to standing. Well, the broad assumption is that the court will find standing here. Uh, Justice Barrett asked some skeptical questions about standing, seeming to side with the liberal justices. Um, But if, as commentators seem to expect, the court does find standing and does strike down the program, what is the likely outcome um, going to be? Uh, How will the Biden administration respond and how could the case affect other Biden administration programs in the future? including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which the court just agreed to review on constitutional grounds. Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, so I'm happy to answer that question with the, with the caveat that, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a political prognosticator by trade, uh, but, but, but to the extent I can speak to that, you know, policy decisions may, I've never worked in the White House, um, but po- it seems to me that policy decisions are made in the White House with an eye both toward legality uh, as well as to policy wisdom, uh, as well as to good old-fashioned good politics. And so it wouldn't surprise me uh, if the Biden administration, you know, is able to take a quite possible and some might even say likely loss on this issue at the court uh, to take it to the people 
and to say, hey, um, this is what we tried to do. Um, and we were frustrated by a, you know, conservative Supreme Court. Leave that to the side. Uh, what I really like, President Biden might say in response, is I would really like Congress to authorize uh, the, uh, this sort of loan forgiveness for all the good policy reasons that we've given. And then we have a political discussion about that, a policy discussion about that and a political discussion about that. I want to separate those two out because they're distinct. But I mean, I'm not saying the Biden administration would welcome a loss. No, I don't think any administration welcomes a loss. On the other hand, there's lemonade to be made when an administration is handed lemons. And I think that that's, they will try to make lemonade. Um, now, you had asked about the CFPB. I'll just say really, really quickly, I think the CFPB is an even more popular cause uh, than student loan forgiveness. And if the CFPB's funding is struck down and therefore the agency is crippled, then I think that's an even more, uh, frankly, you know, an even bigger political gift to the administration than the student loan issue, on which there is indeed some political controversy on about the fairness of the forgiveness program. Anastasia, what are your thoughts about the Biden administration's likely response and the significance of a ruling against the administration for other cases involving the administrative state, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Well, it's it's nice to end the the podcast on a note where we can agree, and I, I happen to agree that the administration will try to make lemons into lemonade here. I will say that at my former employer, Pacific Legal Foundation, we had a lawsuit challenging this program, and we were kicked on, no surprise, standing. And from my experience being at PLF, I will say that out of all the cases that we do, people got the most worked up that I've ever seen about this case. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with our having brought this case, a lot of disagreement. Um, people are really, really, really energized. And so in a way, even a loss might be a win for the Biden administration when it comes to loan forgiveness, because he can use that to rally the base and to perhaps, you know, if not use this just generally in the election to get broader loan relief. So so we'll see what happens there. In terms of what this means, what a, what a bad decision would be moving forward for the administration, it would be one more decision where the court is really showing its commitment to separation of powers doctrine. Conservative justices tend to say that justices should be humble, that they shouldn't get involved, that they should you know, show restraint. But this is one area of law where they've shown a lot of willingness to step in and enforce the Constitution. And so I think it would be a real signal to the administration that that it needs to abide by the separation of powers and make sure that the proper, each branch is, is staying to its proper role. I'm so grateful to both of you for a superbly civil, really illuminating and extremely informative discussion of the debt forgiveness case. Uh, Bill Ariza, Anastasia Bowden, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks. Today's episode was produced by Sam Desai, Bill Pollack, Lana Ulrich, and Julia Redpath. It was engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, and Sophia Gardell. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.